black, white, people of color, conservative, liberal, progressive, African, Asian, Hispanic, poor, middle class, rich, straight, LB, LGBTQ+, male, female, mom, dad, vendor, fireman, pastor, crossfitter, runner, vegan, gluten-free, Christian, Hindu, atheist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, go on and on and on. Words, just a few of the words we use to identify ourselves. Words that we use to uh, provide certain distinguishable characteristics that set us apart. Uh, Words that we use to communicate our overall sameness in regards to what constitutes the objective reality of a particular group. Those, by the way, are two definitions of identity in the dictionary. I I would argue that most of the time, the use of those words, or I won't say most of the time, some of the time, the use of those words as descriptions are in and of themselves not wrong. As a matter of fact, sometimes they're helpful, if we're honest. But I think we would all agree that there are inherent problems in using them, some of them in particular. For example, there's always the tendency to put too much emphasis on the wrong identities. There's always, or there seems to be a growing, rampant divisiveness that is a result of opposing groups or or groups that differ. Some of the combinations of these identities are actually contradictory. There are at times misguided attempts by the church to deal with identity issues and the resulting divisiveness. And then, of course, there's also the absurd when attempts to identify with that same objective reality of a group is not only irrational, but physiologically and biologically impossible. And here's my point. Regardless of how people identify themselves, there is one thing each and every person has in common. Every person, every identity even those from opposing identities in opposing groups. And that one thing is at the root of every identity issue that we see going on today, no matter what it is, as well as the divisiveness that's taking place. And that root problem is sin. And as we've seen in our study in the book of Galatians, to this point there is only one remedy for sin. So, because every person deals with sin, because uh, the, the sin is the root problem of these identity issues and this divisiveness, 
And because there is only one remedy for it, I submit that the problems associated with identity don't need to be dealt with racially or politically or culturally or socioeconomically or in regards to our sexuality or gender. I submit that the problems need to be addressed spiritually. And that's because there is one identity that trumps all other identities and actually brings unity in the midst of diversity. And that is an identity found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who provided the remedy for sin for anyone and everyone who repents of their sins and turns to Him in faith. It is Jesus Christ who... Paul says, provides the identity that you and I find ourselves in right now. We need to take hold of that identity, trust that that identity, and live out of that identity. That being said, I wish you would stand with me in the honor of God's Word one more time. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter that Daniel just read, but I do want to read the first few verses really through chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. But now, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. And for you are all one, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this, your word. We pray that this evening that we would hear from you through what you have already spoken. And we pray that you would bend our wills to yours. And in all things, may we see Jesus high and lifted up. Would you pull our gaze to him in these moments? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this passage, Paul Paul speaks of our true identity. I want to break this down. There is a place in the back of your bulletin to take notes. I want to break this down just into two points. One, we're just going to briefly touch on. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the second. We're going to look at our identity before faith, and we're going to look at our identity after faith. Now, the context, as we look at before faith... The context of this particular passage hasn't changed. We're at the end of chapter 3. Things are the same. We're in the same letter. The same thing is going on. Paul is arguing against the Judaizers and their faith plus works gospel. And he's encouraging the Galatians to stand firm in the gospel that he's been preaching, which is a faith alone gospel. He wants them to remain steadfast in their belief in the power of God and the power of his promise. He wants them to stand firm in that gospel Uh, To which they have responded and been saved. Over and over again, he has stressed, and we've heard it, and you could probably end this with me, and we could say it together, but over and over he has stressed that our our sin is not, uh, he stressed that our our sin is not forgiven, uh, we are not justified, and our salvation is not secured in, or maintained by our work, in any way, in any shape, form, or fashion. He is saying that our sins are forgiven, we are justified, and our salvation is secured 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that promise is powerful. Now, last week in verses 23 and 24, Paul described what life was like and what our identities were before Christ or before faith as the Galatians and as we lived under the law. And he used two metaphors to do that, a metaphor of a jailer and a guardian. And he said that the law's purpose was to guard us or to to restrict us or it was to guard us in a restrictive sense so that we could not escape the reality of our sin. Their purpose was to keep us hemmed in so that we would not only see our sin, but see our inability to do anything about it. The law was put so that we would see our lack of power to overcome and to change our current state. It continually pointed over and over and continually points to our need and our desire for deliverance. And again... Pointing to the fact that we cannot achieve what it is we need and what it is we desire. We were prisoners. If if you remember, we were prisoners under guard. We were slaves under bondage. And we were immature children who were constantly needing this forever state of discipline. But we didn't end there, right? We ended at that place of understanding and and the knowledge and the appreciation that the law the law also pointed to Christ who was and is our only answer to the dire dire situation that we found ourselves in so in verse 25 Paul says but now wonderful words uh, he identifies or or communicates that things have changed things are different Actually, some things are different, plural, and he mentions three. One, he says, Christ has come. Christ has come, and he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, as Aaron mentioned, why we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that at the appropriate and appointed time, God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be born of a virgin, to take on flesh and dwell among us so that he might be born under the law, so that he might live according to the law. Because Christ came to do more than just satisfy the penalty of our sin. Christ came to do more than just take on the curse for our lack of being able to fulfill the law or the curse of the law. Because justification takes more than, or justification is more than just our forgiveness of sins. Justification also includes holiness and righteousness being imputed to us. And so Christ not only came passively to take on that curse on the cross, Christ came that he might actively fulfill the requirements of the law, do everything the law commanded. So he, he comes to not only live under the law, but to fulfill the law, every jot and tittle of the law, so that the righteousness and holiness as he lived would be credited to the count of all those to, credited to the account of all those who would turn to him in faith. He was a substitute, passively and actively. Another difference, he says, is that the Spirit has come. If you look down at verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul says, God sent the Spirit of His Son into their hearts. God raised 
raised them. God has raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life by creating faith and placing that faith within them, giving it to them as a gift, giving it to us as a gift through which we are justified as we repent of our sins and trust in Him. And He did that through the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit seals us and indwells us. We learned in our study of Ephesians that, that the Spirit seals us and is given to us as a down payment, as a surety of what has happened is in fact true. And, and so he, Paul says that as a result, they have direct and unhindered access to God as children. And not only do they have that direct access, but the Spirit Himself, not only that indwelling Spirit, not only prays with them, but prays for them on their behalf. Which leads us to the last difference. The last difference is their new identity has come. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul reiterates what we learned in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 3. Before faith, they were immature children and they were in bondage and they were in need of a guardian. But now faith has come. And so they are no longer in need of that guardian. They're no longer needing that tutor because they are now fully mature. The idea is that they're fully mature children, grown children, adopted sons and heirs of God. Heirs according to promise. They who are slaves are now sons. They're heirs with the same rights and privileges of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul says is not only their Savior, but their brother and co-heir. And Paul says this identity is fixed. It's definite. It's done. The change has taken place. The identity is as fixed and as sure as Christ's work is complete, full, and final. The two go hand in hand. And there are several ways he stresses this throughout this passage. And I would really just simply like to walk through that and show the the definitive nature of this new identity. First, I want us to notice the, the tenses of the verbs. Look, look at the passage before you. Verse 25, faith has come. Uh, are no longer, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, you are all sons of God. Verse 27, you were baptized, have put on Christ. Verse 28, you are all one in Christ. Verse 29, you are Christ. You are Abraham's. Verse 3, you were children, you were enslaved, you were, verse 5, you were under, verse 6, you are sons, God has sent, verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but sons and heirs. There is an unmistakable distinction between before and after. We can't get beyond the fact that there was a point where things were, and there's a point where things now are. What was no longer is, what is is what is now. There's no, if you try harder, maybe eventually, possibly something's going to happen. There is, there is no, if things work out, well, you know, maybe at some point. And there's definitely not, keep a hold of the new, or or, I'm sorry, keep a hold of the old and take on the new. 
The two don't mix. Who they were is not who they are now. They are different. Their identity is fixed and definite. Notice too, secondly, that they're all involved. He, he speaks corporately. In verse 25, he says, we are no longer. Verse 26, you are all. Verse 28, he says, you are all. The status has been determined and declared and it doesn't have levels or stages depending upon who they are or what they've accomplished or how well they do. They're all, they're all the same. Everyone possesses the same dignity. Everyone possesses the same privilege that comes with being sons and heirs. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one shall be cast out or turned away. No one only gets part. Thirdly, notice the inclusive language in verse 25. He says, sons of God. Verse 28, he says, you are all one. Verse 29, you are heirs. Verse 5, sons. Verse 6, sons. Verse 7, son and heir. And I know you, you hear that and you go, that doesn't sound all that inclusive. It sounds rather exclusive. It sounds only masculine and, and male. But we need to understand the context in which he was writing. And know that and, and maybe the term children might be better. And some translations use that term. But the reality is that at that time. And Paul is packing a little more punch here. Because at that time. Women and girls were not a part of the inheritance at all. They were not expecting any type of inheritance. Whether it be property or money. What have you. And so Paul is being very inclusive here. He's, he's really changing the scene to say all of you, men and women alike, are now all sons. In other words, you're now all heirs of the king and are awaiting an inheritance. Everyone has the right to that inheritance. And I think this is backed up in verse uh, with the fourth thing that I want you to notice in verse 28. Notice that the identity of son or heir or that identity of someone who is in, in Christ, that, that identity surpasses all other and supersedes all other identities. In verse 28, Paul says that any other identity we may have, whether it be cultural or ethnic, that's the Jew or Greek, uh, whether socioeconomic, slave or free, or gender related, male, female, is no longer a barrier. No longer a barrier to fellowship among one another because they are all one in Christ Jesus. One race, one ethnicity, or one culture is not better than any other. One socioeconomic group or class is not to receive any type of preferential treatment. And though roles are different, one gender is not more valuable in regards to dignity, worth, giftedness, and ability. Salvation is indiscriminately offered. And because it's indiscriminately offered, we therefore, in salvation therefore creates an inclusive fellowship within the church. And within that Within the church and within that inclusive nature, those barriers that divide within, uh, out in the world are absent or should be. Because it creates, as I've already said, it creates unity in the midst of diversity. 
Now lastly, in verse 26, we see that the identity is fixed due to the union that exists with Christ. Our identity is set because we have been united to Christ. He says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul says that their identity as sons results in, or their identity as sons is a result of being in Christ. One commentator said this, he said, Paul's words are an allusion to the ceremony at which a Roman youth passing from boyhood to manhood uh, set aside the clothing which marked him as a child and was invested with the clothing which marked him as a mature man. And that, that may be the case. I don't necessarily want to argue with that, but, but I think there was more on Paul's mind than just that. I think something like Isaiah 61.10 was on his mind. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord... My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I think something like Zechariah 3, 1 to 4 was on Paul's mind. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Israel rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joseph was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. I think that's what was on Paul's mind. Having been clothed with righteousness. The bottom line is Paul wanted them to know... That those who believed the gospel that he had preached to them and had repented of their sins and turned to faith in Christ had been united to Christ by the Spirit. They were identified with him. They were, there was a closeness and an intimacy with him. They had been uh, enveloped by him. He covered them. He was theirs. They were his. Their guilt and shame that they had due to their sin had been covered by his robes of righteousness. And actually, even better than that, their shame and guilt, the clothing of their shame and guilt had been placed upon him and taken to the cross. His robes of righteousness had been given to them. Divinely exchanged. Calvin put it this way, Paul explains to the Galatians that what belongs to Christ is communicated to them. They are so closely united to him that in the presence of God, they bear the name and character of Christ and are viewed in him rather than in themselves. How beautiful. How blessed we are because of the grace of God. And the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, what had taken place spiritually, Paul says, was signified and sealed in their baptism that we're actually going to see in just a few minutes. So in a way, in, in the midst of this argument, in the midst of this encouragement, I hear Paul saying, don't fall back into the life under the law and look to circumcision 
Don't fall back into the types and shadows of what used to be. Rather, look to Christ and His finished work signified and sealed in your baptism. Because just as you, and I'm going to use this language in just a minute, but just as you experience, He's letting them know, just as you experience the water pouring over you in baptism, you can be sure that the blood of Christ has washed over you and taken care of your sins. Just as you receive that physical sign, the spiritual realities were present because of faith. He says, you're in Christ. You've put Him on. You're sons and heirs and you have every right and privilege to go along with it. You're no longer slaves. You're much more your sons and daughters and heirs of the King. All of that is yours. Don't go back. And we're going to hear that theme extended through the rest of chapter 4. Don't go back. Now, unfortunately, we need to wrap up. So I want to say, brothers and sisters, and I've kind of intermixed this as we've gone along, but what was true for the Galatians is true for you and me today. It's all true of us. Having placed our faith in Christ, the same is true. Having trusted in His work on our behalf, the same is true for us. You and I are no longer who we once were. And I know there are times we don't feel like it. Even though I would argue that there is an experiential component because the Spirit does indwell us. But there are times that we don't feel like it. And there's definitely times that we don't act like it. There are definitely those times that we don't act like who we are. But we must remember that it's not our emotions or our behavior that determines our identity. Our true identity has been determined despite our emotions, despite our behavior. Our true identity is in the legal status that has been declared over us. We are not guilty before a holy God based on the merits of Christ who we've been united with. Remember, that's that's why the promise is so powerful. Because these promises have been made to Christ. They are His and what's His is ours. We've been called to, to seek to live in a manner worthy of that. But just as our behavior didn't determine our identity, our behavior doesn't secure our our identity either. It was secured in the same way that it was determined, and that is by grace through faith in Christ. So as we go, how do do we respond to that? how How can we respond? And there are five things that I thought of this week. First and foremost, repent. Our response can be repentance because we all must admit that we find our identities in ways that we shouldn't. We all define ourselves in ways that we shouldn't. Some seek to identify themselves by their sin and by how they once were. And others seek to identify themselves with people, places and things that are actually idolatrous. Still others seek to identify themselves with anything and everything other than Christ. And the call is to repent and to believe Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Repent of those things and look to Him. Secondly, believe and rest. 
Repent and believe and rest. Believe the Lord and His Word regarding your true identity. Rest in the full and final and complete work of Christ on your behalf and in who you are in Him. And live in the truth of that, that that identity supersedes all others. Third, strive. By God's grace, seek and strive to be who you've been declared to be in Christ. Strive more and more to put death to uh, put sin to death and live more and more under righteousness by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. And when you fail, go back and see Numbers 1 and 2. Matt and I were talking a couple months ago in Ephesians. You know, strive and rest. Strive and rest. Strive and rest. Fourthly, appreciate differences. And what I mean by that is that no matter where we're from, no matter what color we might be, whether we're a man or a woman, adult or a child, uh, regardless of our marital status or the size of our family or how much we earn or where we work, or what abilities we have, or what education that we're seeking for ourselves or for our children. Whatever it is, remember, we are all sinners. We are all sinners. And there's absolutely no reason for us to exclude others or think that we ourselves or anyone else is more deserving or less deserving of grace. We are all sinners in need of the same pardon. We're all sinners in in need of the same imputed righteousness of Christ. We need to look at one another, other believers, as those who have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We need to look at non-believers as those who are in need of the righteousness of Christ. And it should affect how we treat one another. And then finally, be content. Be content. You are an heir. You've been adopted by God. You've been given every... Ephesians chapter 1. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What more could you need? Jealousy and discontentment are contrary to our identity in Christ. I pray the Lord would bless the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so very much for the Lord Jesus Christ.